welcome to this talk on truth and lying in Aquinas. I'd like to begin with three stories or scenarios which highlight the importance and challenges of this topic and which I will reference throughout the talk. One, in the fourth century, during one of the many Christian persecutions which touched North America, St. Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, fled the city by boat up the Nile. The oarsmen rode, des rode desperately to escape the Roman soldiers in hot pursuit. After they passed a bend in the river, out of sight of the enemy, the saint reportedly told his rowers to turn the boat around and to row calmly in the opposite direction toward their pursuers. When the two boats met, the Romans asked, where is the traitor Athanasius? The saint calmly responded, he is not far. Did Athanasius tell a lie? Two, Immanuel Kant discussed the morality of lying using a hypothetical example of a person responding to a murderer at the door. Following the Nazi terror of World War II, Kant's fictitious scenario became a true life dilemma for those in Europe who hid Jews from certain death. The example shifted to what I will call my simple Dutch grandmother, a woman of faith who hides Jews because she knows in her gut that she should save the lives of her fellow countrymen, regardless of their religion. When Nazi soldiers force their way into her house and ask, is she hiding Jews? She tells them she has no Jews in her house. Does grandma tell a lie? The third scenario. More recently, pro-life initiatives in the United States have added a further nuance to the truth lie question. At issue are pro-life advocates who enter abortion clinics with hidden microphones and cameras. Some have falsified their age and personal information, pretending to seek an abortion as a minor. Others pose as representatives of businesses interested in buying organs from aborted fetuses for transplant patients. Both of these movements and others like them intentionally deceive abortion providers in order to gain firsthand evidence of illegal activities, including abortions offered to underage women without parental consent or the selling of organs of aborted fetuses. The ultimate goal, to save unborn babies. Did they lie? These three scenarios and similar dilemmas are at the heart of the debate on lying. A debate which has significance not only for difficult dilemmas such as these, but also for our daily interactions with friends, family, and coworkers. The debate is centuries old and rightly so. In fact, it indicates that human beings in general agree that lies are evil acts which can weaken or even bring about the disintegration of the human community. The 20th century Jewish philosopher Martin Buber argued this point, noting that man's social nature demands qualities of loyalty or reliability. Lack of these can destroy the basis of our common life. This debate revolves around various questions, including what is a lie? Is it ever permissible to tell a lie 
is it ever permissible not to tell the truth? Thomas Aquinas answers these questions and more, but many ethicists and moral theologians find his answers unacceptable. I will argue that Thomas's teaching on lying, properly understood, is correct and rooted in the nature of truth and the rational nature of the human person. Therefore, the discussion begins with Thomas's definition of truth, followed by his definition of a lie, including important distinctions he makes regarding various types of lies. This leads logically to another question of whether every lie is a sin. And I will conclude with a brief discussion of the question of whether omitting the truth is considered to be a lie or sinful. I would note the goal is not to resolve all dilemmas, but to establish principles which help to guide us in our moral life, to avoid evil, and to discern culpability in complex moral situations. So point one, truth. Thomas Aquinas opens De Veritate with the question, quid est veritas, what is truth? Now, leaving aside the discussion of first truth, ontological truth, our focus is intellectual truth as a human act and virtue. De Veritate is rich with definitions and distinctions that Thomas gleans from his pagan and Christian predecessors including a classic definition attributed to Isaac ben Solomon, Israeli, a 10th century Neoplatonist. Thomas cites him no less than 10 times with the definition, truth is the conformity of a thing and the intellect. Another important source for Thomas's teaching on truth and lying is the Secunda Secunde of the Summa Theologiae. Here he offers another definition of truth as the uttering of certain signs, which are in conformity with things, and such signs are either words or external actions or an external thing. It's important to note that as a virtue, Thomas connects truth to the cardinal virtue of justice, which orders the will towards another. Thomas addresses truth though in two separate contexts. First, the legal context, as in a court of law or analogous situations where there is a proper authority. Here, truth is properly of the virtue of justice, a truth strictly owed to another who has proper authority. Secondly, Thomas speaks of truth, though, as a virtue related to but distinct from justice, the moral virtue of truth. This moral virtue has the object of communication with another who does not have proper authority or a strict right to the truth because in some way he or she is my equal. Thomas argues that this virtue falls short of true justice. And in such situations, there is no legal due to speak the truth. However, it is still a virtue and there is a moral due of some sort. Truth, whether legal or moral, reflects a triple ordering. And I'd like to address that triple ordering right now. First of all, truth is an ordering between my mind and the things I know. Secondly, 
truth is something of an ordering between my mind and the signs I use to express the things I know. Thirdly, truth is an ordering between me and the one to whom I communicate these signs. We'll come back to this later. Now, while the entire created world manifests something of the true by its very existence, man alone is able to move from the acknowledgement of his own being and that of all creation to grapple with the reality in, a, in the tangle of his mind and what a tangle it is. There's in fact something of an irony here. Consider new parents. They eagerly await, encourage, and rejoice in their child's first utterances of incomprehensible syllables, then their first words, as the child correctly identifies mommy, daddy, dog, ball, cookie. Yet a few years later, these same parents are horrified when this same child intentionally creates disorder by lying about breaking the mirror hitting his brother, or feeding the cookies to the dog. The uniquely human gift of speech, enabling us to communicate intelligibly with one another, is so easily disfigured into a uniquely human evil. Returning to Martin Buber, he writes, the lie is a specific evil which man has introduced into nature. Other deeds of violence, error are merely sins, he says, of highly developed animals, but the lie is our own invention, different in kind from every deceit that the animals can produce. He continues, a lie was possible only after a creature, man, was capable of conceiving the being of truth. It was possible only as directed against conceived truth. In a lie, the spirit practices treason against itself, close quote. What is a lie? While all generally agree that a lie is opposed to truth, disagreement arises as to the specific nature of the lie. What is its essence? Even the Catholic Church has struggled to present a definitive definition. The first version of the, Catholic, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, released in 1992, defined a lie as this, quote, to speak or act against the truth in order to lead into error someone who has a right to the truth. Note three essential elements, speaking or acting against the truth, intentionally leading someone into error, and third, the receiver has no right to the truth. However, in 1997, the revised official version of the catechism eliminated the final clause. Someone has a right to know the truth. So the updated version read, to lie is to speak or act against the truth in order to lead someone into error. This definition is quite similar to that of Augustine in his Contramendatium on lying. He defined a lie as telling a falsehood in order to deceive. Now, Janet Smith and Christopher Coxor, who are very involved in this debate, claim that the revised definition does not negate the first, 
So the revised definition of the catechism doesn't negate that first one, which had the extra phrase. And they say that the receiver having no right to the truth can still be identified as the essential element of the lie. Now, returning to Aquinas, what does he say? He opens his discussion on the vice of lying in the Summa Theologiae by restating a fundamental moral principle regarding the moral act. A moral act takes its species from its object or its end. In applying this principle to a lie, Thomas first identifies three components of a lie. And these relate to the triple ordering that I already noted. Now, I would also add here, these three components are not always present in every lie. What are they? First, there is a purely material element, the material object. What is this? When I say something that does not conform to a reality I believe to be true. Example, I'm gonna use a simple example here. I think it's raining outside. I say it's raining outside, but it's not raining. Is that a lie? There is an order between what I say and what I think in my mind. And for this reason, Thomas says this is not formally a lie. It doesn't conform with reality. There's a material falsehood because what I believe and what I say, though they are in accord, they do not conform to that reality outside, the objective reality. That's element one. The second point, the formal object. In this case, I intend to state what is contrary to what I believe to be true, using the same example. I think it's raining outside, but I intentionally state the contrary. Freely and with reason, I say what is contrary to my mind. Thomas argues that this intention to speak, to say what is contrary to what I have in my mind is the essence of a lie. The third point, this is that I not only intentionally speak contrary to what I know in my mind, but I also have the intention of deceiving you. Returning to the example of the rain. I don't think it's raining outside, but I intentionally tell you it is raining because I don't want you to leave. I intend to deceive you and hope you will believe what I say. Now, Thomas argues that this added intention of deception doesn't specify the lie, but it does perfect it. So what defines the lie is the contrary nature of what I have in my mind that is contrary to what I say. If I intend to deceive you with that, Thomas says that perfects it. In summary, what does Thomas hold to be the most fundamental element of the lie? It is not whether what I say is actually true or not, but whether I believe it to be true. The very nature of the lie is that there is opposition to the mind, locutio contra mentem. I speak contrary to what I know. And abuse of the world, his word, he says, abusum vocis. Since I am a rational being made for truth and the purpose of language is to communicate truth, 
then a lie is contrary to my nature and as such intrinsically evil. Now at this point, many revisionists argue that Thomas and Augustine before him err. They, how can they identify every lie as an intrinsic evil? Even those who might save a life as in the case of my Dutch grandmother. Part of the issue, I would argue, lies in a misunderstanding, often implicit, in of an intrinsic evil. Now this term has a crucial place in Catholic moral discourse. And it's often referenced, even in the catechism, to categorize seriously evil acts, including rape, human trafficking, abortion, etc. For this reason, we often identify intrinsic evil with mortal sin, but this is an error. Intrinsic evil is not synonymous with mortal sin. Since intrinsic evil indicates an action that is disordered in itself, regardless of one's good intention or circumstances. In fact, the intentions and circumstances, as in the case of my Dutch grandmother, may lessen or aggravate the moral evil of the act. Thomas does not fall into this error because he makes a further distinction. After defining lie as an intrinsic evil, he proceeds to a threefold distinction of types of lies, which is very important because these three types of lies impact the gravity of the lie. And these distinctions pertain to the end or intended goal of the lie. The first type of lie, the jocose lie, joking, which is told, Thomas defines it not merely as a joke, but something for pleasure. Here, my intention includes some good and no harm. In fact, my intention may not even be to deceive you at all. I may know that you will not be deceived by what I say. Though still a lie, the intention here diminishes the moral evil. The second type of lie is the mischievous lie, which is told with the intent to injure. It may be done for profit or merely to harm, but regardless of why, the intention to injure aggravates the disorder of the lie itself. Third is the officious lie. Now this lie is told neither to harm nor merely for pleasure because it has as its end the assistance and accomplishment of some good. Now, as to these three types of lies, even revisionists agree to the fundamental immorality of the mischievous lie. And I'm going to leave aside the jocose lie due to time and because it has many of its own nuances, many of which Thomas does not even explicitly address. Our focus this evening or during this talk at the heart, is at the heart of the debate and it is the officious lie a lie told to prevent evil and to achieve a true good. Now, having defined lie and having set aside the different types of lies, we're focusing on the officious lie. Now the question is, is every lie a sin? If every lie is an intrinsic evil, 
Is it also true then that the officious lie told to save someone's life is also an intrinsic evil? In other words, did my Dutch grandmother tell a lie? And if she did, she committed an act which was intrinsically evil? Did she commit a sin? Now, as noted, Thomas would say, yes. But he would add that this is an officious lie and the intentions and circumstances lessen her culpability. She was saving the life of the Jews. She was speaking to a Nazi soldier who had no right to the truth since he was acting in the name of corrupt authority and an immoral law. Here, the intention and circumstances diminish the evil, but do not negate the disorder of the words. Janice Smith considers Thomas' teaching as idealistic, a pre-lapsarian perspective, which as such does not apply to the real world of sinners living in a sinful world. She outrightly rejects Aquinas's and Augustine's rigorous reasons and conclusions, which condemn all false significations. We'll come back to that term. Peter Crift agrees with his teaching, and he said, agrees with Janet Smith. He also says that Thomas's teaching lays too heavy a burden on the normal Christian, including my Dutch grandmother. But rather than offering a philosophical argument, Peter Kreft offers an intuitive argument which condones lies in certain situations. He claims that ordinary, sane human beings without formal moral study, a PhD or logical arguments, have a moral common sense, an intuitive reason or a rational intuition, which he doesn't argue that this is um, infallible, but it does tell them that there is something wrong. If Thomas says, my Dutch grandmother sinned when she told the Nazi soldiers she was hiding Jews, he says that just tells us in our gut, there's something intuitive that tells us mm, there's something wrong there. Criff says that Thomas cannot and should not expect her to be capable of the verbal ploy Athanasius used. He is not far. Criff proposes that we would do better to remember a more simple, innocent moral wisdom when speaking of such situations. I'll come back to this point also. Janet Smith offers here a more extensive objection to Thomas's perspective. As to Thomas's three elements of the lie, she agrees that the material element alone, saying something which is not in accord with reality does not in itself define a lie, the first element of Thomas's um, distinctions. However, Janet Smith denies that my intentional speaking, contrary to my mind, Thomas's second element, which he says formally defines a lie, Janet Smith rejects this. She argues that locutio contra mentum, to speak against my mind is morally neutral. And she prefers to call this, what I already mentioned, a mere false signification, which is distinct from a lie per se. Therefore, the exterior object of stating a falsehood 
she says, cannot be judged until we know the intentions and circumstances. For Smith, the defining element of a lie is that I do not speak the truth, um, but it requires that I intend to deceive. So it's not merely that I don't speak the truth. So it's not merely that I don't speak the truth. It is that I intend to deceive someone who has a right to the truth. As such, Smith seems to be restricting lying to legal justice. Truth is applicable solely and required solely when I am speaking to proper authority of a state and analogous situations where the other has a right to the information pertaining to his or her jurisdiction. According to Janet Smith, if I can rationally argue that the receiver has no authority and no legal right to truth, and if I have a good intention, then it may be, quote, fitting and morally licit, end quote, to intentionally utter certain falsehoods. Therefore, one can claim that nurses who are performing immoral acts in an abortion clinic have no right to know my real age. So a 20-year-old woman who presents herself as a 16-year-old seeking an abortion does not lie but merely gives a false signification. So too, my Dutch grandmother. In fact, Smith holds that even if one formally intends to deceive, the circumstance may justify the lie and redefine the lie as a false signification. So in our examples, since the Romans, the Nazi soldier and the abortionist have no legal claim to the truth, I may speak falsely, I may intend to deceive, and I do not formally tell a lie. I merely give false signification. To further her position, Smith argues that Aquinas is inconsistent. Now, here she references another teaching of Aquinas on the distinction between killing and murder where we know that killing is allowed in certain cases, as with a soldier or in self-defense, while murder is intrinsically evil. Smith believes this same distinction applies to false signification and lying. False signification is not intrinsically evil and may be morally good when the person to whom I speak has no right to the truth, as in all three scenarios that I gave or when my speaking the truth could lead to physical harm, specifically here, Athanasius and the Dutch grandmother. Like murder, Smith agrees that the lie, lie, formal lie for her is an intrinsic evil, but she has restricted the definition to, by using false signification when someone has the right to the truth. So false signification in general is not immoral, it becomes a lie when someone has the right to the truth. What Smith and other revisionists fail to acknowledge is that killing is not intrinsically evil because although the act always includes physical evil, moral evil comes from the will. Natural law demands that one take normal precautions to preserve one's own life and not to harm others. But natural law also includes norms 
regarding the social nature of a human being. We live in society and it logically follows that governments must protect their citizens. Therefore, soldiers may kill attackers. And even individuals may unintentionally harm or even kill an attacker, presuming they are using proportional force in accord with reason, what we call self-defense. While murder, intentional killing of an innocent person is intrinsically and gravely Ill, evil, killing in itself does not include an intrinsic moral disorder. If Russia invades the Ukraine, a Ukrainian soldier acting in the name of his country not only can, but has an obligation to protect his country and even to intentionally kill a Russian soldier. Returning to lie or false signification, regardless of intention or circumstance, either of these is contrary to reason. Note that these terms in themselves imply reference to a conscious, rational human being and not someone talking in their sleep. Such a signification is of its very nature contrary to reason since the intellect, the intellect has truth as its object. Communication is a means of conveying that truth to another, both before and after the fall. In the words of Aquinas, Words are naturally signs of understanding. Therefore, it is unnatural and undue that one signify by word that which he does not have in his mind. Back to that original distinction that the lie is when I speak, I say what is contrary to my mind. Another point which logically follows from this. What is the gravity of the lie? We noted this a little bit, but I'd like to return to this point, especially in the context of grandma. We've already noted every lie is a sin. The intention, however, of the officious lie, whereby I intend to bring about a greater good diminishes the gravity. Grandma faces a moral dilemma. She has to choose between two evils. That's what a dilemma is. One, she turns the Jews over to a certain death. Or two, she tells a lie to protect them. She tells the soldiers that she is not hiding Jews with the intention of deceiving them. Why? Because she knows they represent an evil regime and therefore their authority over her and the Jews has been compromised. What is the moral nature of her act? For the sake of argument, I'd like to take the story a step further. Let's say later that day, grandma's grandson comes to visit her and he's a priest. Grandma tells him the story, confessing that I told a lie. What does her grandson, the priest say? Here, I would like to use Peter Kreft's intuitive reason argument against him. Just as grandma's simple moral wisdom told her to try to save the, Jew, save the Jews, that same simple moral wisdom tells grandma, I told a lie. And if her grandson, the priest says, oh, grandma, you were trying to save lies, you didn't tell a lie. 
I guarantee you her simple moral wisdom will lead her to admonish her grandson, possibly slap him in the face and say, I told a lie and don't you say I didn't. Her simple moral wisdom tells her that the end does not justify the means. The saving of lives does not change the species ever act. It's still a lie. But the end and the circumstances certainly mitigate the gravity of the lie. Therefore, in such situations, the priest does not negate the lie, but neither agreeing with Kriftir should he lay a heavy burden on grandma. He must assure her that the circumstances mitigate her culpability. The lie is merely a venial sin and a slight one at that. What about the third scenario of those telling lies to prevent abortion? Is their situation the same as grandma's? I think we need to make a distinction here regarding the circumstances. Both lies would be classified as officious since their intention is to save innocent lives. But unlike the situation of Athanasius and grandma, there is no immediate harm that these advocates against abortion may cause or may prevent, immediate harm that they could prevent, excuse me. And because there's no immediate threat per se, presuming they live in a state with legitimate authority, they would bear more culpability for their lie than grandma. Now, this is a much more complex situation and you could argue more about it, but I'm going, I would just conclude here with a point. With Kreft, I would say we can intuitively sense that there's something good in their intention, but the question remains, does any immoral act of another legitimize my lie? If yes, what are the implications for society? The final point, a return to Athanasius. Now Athanasius, he didn't tell a lie. He was close enough to speak to those soldiers they asked, where is Athanasius? And he said, he was not far. That was true. He was only a, a few feet away in another boat. Now this example addresses scenarios where one is not speaking contrary to one's mind. Therefore, we're not speaking formally of a lie, but rather we're saying less than the full truth, what has been traditionally called mental reservation. Now, critical to Athanasius' story is the fact that these soldiers were seeking to kill an innocent man. Therefore, like the Nazi soldiers, they had no legal right to the truth. And this is, absolute, this is an absolute prerequisite for use of mental reservation. The person has no authority to, for, to receive the truth. But mental reservation <clears throat> includes another defining characteristic of the moral virtue of truth, which Thomas addresses. When Thomas speaks of the virtue of truth, he says it leans toward saying less rather than saying more. It leans towards silence. Remember, we're not speaking of someone having the proper authority to what I say. When someone asked, how are you? They do not expect 
And I am not morally obliged to tell them every aspect of my physical and emotional well-being. Even in a court of law, the legal obligation of truth requ requires a truthful, but still a limited answer. If I am asked, where were you on the evening of August 15th? It is sufficient to say I drove from my home to my parents' house for dinner without adding the name of every street I drove on, unless I am specifically asked that question. Therefore, if the receiver has no authority to the truth, Thomas argues, I can actually remain silent. But if I choose to speak, then the virtue of truth requires that I signify the truth of my mind, even if in a limited manner. Thomas and Augustine both agree on this point. And they say, um, although it may be unlawful to tell a lie in order to deliver another from danger, one may hide the truth prudently by keeping it back. A little more on this from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It addresses this same point, although it does not formally speak of mental reservation. Numbers 2488 and 2489 say, the right to communication of the truth is not unconditional. And adds, no one is bound to reveal the truth to someone who does not have the right to know it. Now, the catechism goes on to list four principles governing mental reservation. And these are very important. Number one, prudence is necessary. One has to discern in concrete situations, one has to judge whether or not it is appropriate to reveal the truth to someone who asks for it. Number two, charity and respect govern our response to every request for information and communication. Charity and respect. Prudence, charity, respect. Number three, because prudence and charity and respect are required, the good and safety of others, respect for privacy, and common good are sufficient reasons for being silent about what ought not to be made known, or it says for using discrete language. Discrete language, what does that mean? I'll come back to that in a moment. First, the fourth principle from the catechism, one must avoid scandal, leading others into sin. I would add two further specifications, which applies to something of this discrete language. What I say must be true, even if I say less than is required, less than I could say, because there's no legitimate authority, there's no legal obligation to speak the full truth. What I say must be true. But what I say could be understood equivocally. This has been a traditional teaching um, of the church for centuries. That is, I speak 
what is true, but my words, the words I use are ambiguous. Or in the situation, there is ambiguity. Let me use an example. A Vietnamese community that I know in Vietnam were forbidden by law to accept young women into their congregation. However, they still had, because this law they considered to be immoral against natural law and against the law of the church, they still had young women visit them. One evening, police came to the convent and they asked who was this young woman who was there with the sisters and was not registered. One of the sisters said, this is my sister. Now, we can understand that in two different ways. Even in the Vietnamese language, there were two different ways that term could be understood. This is my sister could be understood and interpreted as this is a member of my family, my blood sister relation. Sisters said that, though, with the understanding, she knew in her mind that this is a religious sister. What she said was true but could be understood ambiguously because she was speaking to someone who did not have the right to that truth. If she was speaking in a court of law, in a legitimate court of law with legitimate authority, she could not have done that and she should or she should not have done that. St. Alphonsus Liguori had a statement on this regarding mental reservation. He said, we do not deceive our neighbor, but for a just cause, we allow him to deceive himself, just as this sister did. That policeman could have interpreted what she said as religious sister. She hoped he would not, but he could have. A second specification that I would add. The church has always condemned what it calls strict mental reservation back to the 17th century. Why does it condemn this other form of mental reservation? Because it's not discrete language and equivocal language. So there's a critical point here of discrete equivocal language. In strict mental reservation, I don't speak equivocally. Rather, I add something in my mind mentally. Well, the person listening could never interpret what I say properly because he can't know what I'm thinking. This has been condemned. Conclusion, when dealing with complicated moral teachings like truth and lying, we will find that good men disagree. A well-respected historian once said regarding such issues, there are arguments where good men disagree and good men should. We are all seeking truth in our own feeble manner. Augustine and Aquinas do not hold to their teachings merely out of stubbornness, but due to the importance of the argument. Augustine went so far as to invoke the testimony of the martyrs to support his claim that one should never lie even when faced with death. He said that to lie, quote, dishonors the holy martyrs. In fact, it abolishes martyrdom altogether. Why? because the martyrs would have acted more justly and wisely according to these people if they had not professed themselves to be Christians to their persecutors and by their confessions make them killers. 
He continues. Rather, people would say, they should have by lying and denying what they were, preserved the advantage of the flesh and the intention of the heart and not allowed their persecutors to carry out the wicked deed they had already conceived. An important point to remember, St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas pray for us. Thank you.